Good morning. morning. It's good to be with you. Um, I can tell you that since they've they've made this announcement, um, my wife and I are just so excited. Can't wait to dive in with both feet. And since the word has gone out, you know, I've had all these students that come to me that have come through Bethany Christian School. And without, you know, you talk to kids and you're like, all right, how was it? And kids never, I mean, they're eager to complain about stuff, you know, oh, it was terrible. And without fail, Every single kid that I've talked to about Bethany said, it was awesome. I love Bethany. Every adult that I've talked to about Bethany that had interactions here, I love Bethany. And I am so excited to come and, and join this team at Rio Vista and this team at Bethany and really, really invest into these kids, into families to train up this next generation of leaders. Just a real quick introduction of who I am. I, again, my name is Sam Kasten-Smith. I have uh, became a believer at the age of 21, about 12 years ago. And when I, when I first dive, dove in, dived, I'm your headmaster. <laughs> oh, boy. When I first dove into my life and what I wanted to pursue... In ministry, I wanted to make the biggest splash for the kingdom of God that I could. So right out of the gates, I went in and I started getting involved in all these different ministries and figuring out, okay, what can I teach or write books or do this or do that? And then I had the opportunity to write a book I'll talk to you about in a minute. And I came to really believe deep down in my bones and everything that I find in the scriptures, which we're going to talk about today, tells me that the battle that rages the hottest and between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness for eternal matters is the battle for the hearts and the minds of our kids. In my opinion, the reason why I'm invested in the field of Christian education is I cannot think of a better place to invest your life, your talents, your passions than training up the next generation. And Lord knows today they need it. They need the church to invest. They need the church to rise up. You know, we're talking about the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, it was the Levitical priests who rose up and took ownership of training up kids alongside the parents. Well, guess who the priests are today? You are. You are a holy nation of royal priests, Peter says. You... God has entrusted you, the church, with the responsibility of training up the next generation. And there is nothing more noble. By the way, just by mention, I have a wife, my wife Laura, and I celebrated our five-year anniversary yesterday. She is amazing. Our marriage has been really easy, I'm sure she would tell you. (laughs) It's been easy for me, that's all I can say. but we have two little boys. One's going to be going into pre-K-2. One's going to be growing into pre-K-4. We're excited for them to come into Bethany. Uh, the reputation of the teachers and the staff, I, I'm just so excited to dive in, not only for me, but for my kids and, and my family. Last month, actually a month ago today, Ryan and I went to Haiti. And while we were in Haiti, you know, before we'd gone, I'd heard all these terrible, horrible things. If there was a terrible thing to be heard about Haiti, I heard about it before we went on this trip. Uh, people contracting diseases and having to have feet amputated and throat slit and all kinds of crazy stories I'm hearing, which got me really excited to go. And we go there, and everything that I found in Haiti was just awesome. We went to this little city called Pignon, 
and it's up in the mountains. And actually, it's so remote that when we're going out to these different schools up in the mountains and in the forest, they're actually telling us that some of the kids might look at you and be a little frightened because a lot of them have never seen a white person before. And we would go around, and sure enough, we called it our Blanc alarm because when they would see white people, they're like, Blanc, 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 you know, which in Creole means white. And they knew you were from the church. And what I found that this pastor who had planted 65 churches and along with each and every one of these churches had commissioned that pastor to come up and train the kids in Christian education. And what I found was amazing. You know, I went there bracing myself for what I was going to see in all extreme poverty and the amount of gratitude and the idols that God was going to expose. And he did all that. It's an incredibly poor nation. It's the poorest in the Western Hemisphere. But as we were going around ministering, and here's Ryan, we're going in doing skits, and he got the opportunity to wear a crown and a cape, and after the skit, he refused to take it off, so it got a little awkward. (laughs) No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, he took it off. But we're going around, and we see these kids, and these kids, like, you go into these schools, and they don't have roofs, they've got dirt floors, they don't have blackboards, they don't have books, you give them a pencil, and they look like they've just won the lottery. And I'll tell you what they did have smiles and joy and praise. We walked into the first school that we went to, the first church, and the praise of these kids was deafening. Just shouting with all their might and joy in the Lord. And you look here and you see, you know, they're dust covered and their prettiest outfits to go and pray and worship. And they take it so seriously and they're like sponges because all they have is the word of the Lord. They don't have all the competing idols that come with America. They have them, but they're not as pronounced. So when they love the Lord, man, the Lord is all they have. And I found myself midway through this trip asking myself, you know, bracing to go there. And then I found myself bracing for coming home. For where praise might not be so precious. And where the Lord isn't the centerpiece of every home and city and school and church. Now I'm telling you, I love this church. I love it and I feel like it's the most healthy place I've ever been. It feeds my soul. I love the church. I love the school. And I think there's awesome, awesome things we can do here. Things are excellent. But I want you to join with us in making things better. Five years ago, I wrote this book called The Bible and the Blackboard. And when I wrote it, I I had all these ideas of what was right, what was going to fix the church, what was going to fix the nation, what was going to fix families. And then I wrote this book, and every paradigm that I had in my mind just kind of blew up. And I found this and came to the deep, deep, deep conviction that the greatest battle we face and where we need to engage is in the classroom. It's in the home. It's moms and dads training up young godly kids and believing it and valuing it. And that's what the Shema is about that we're going to talk about today. Here's some statistics to talk about where we are just as a nation. They kind of startled me, so I figured I'd share them with you. Most American adults are unable to identify Genesis as the first book of the Bible. Most, only half of American adults can name one of the four Gospels. And when you ask high school seniors to identify Sodom and Gomorrah, half think they're a married couple. (laughs) 
But I mean, that's where we are as a nation. And when we went to remove God from our schools in 1963 and we outlawed the Bible in schools, we thought to ourselves, oh, we're getting rid of that superstitious religion. Without God in the classroom, things are going to be great, right? And since 1963, every measurable standard of education has plummeted. These, for example, are our SAT scores. Plummet. Every measurable standard shows that when kids are invested in their church, when they have relationships with the Lord, they excel. GPAs are directly tied to church attendance in every study they've ever done on it. We are unilaterally disarming our kids and this nation. So I want to talk to you about what does God have to say about education? The Shema. Now, in Christian Protestant evangelical circles, this particular text is not all that widely known. It's Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 9, but if you were to go into first century circles and you were to walk around with Jesus, you would have heard the Shema regularly. It was said in the morning, it was said in the evening. You didn't begin a synagogue worship service unless you recited the Shema. Still to this day, they're constantly reciting the Shema because God has a very important message to give here, right? Even the Shema, that's, that's where my name comes from. So my name is Samuel, first name is Samuel. It stems from the Hebrew, Shema, which means hear. El, God, hear me, O God. And the Shema begins this way. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It may as well say, the Lord our God is alone. There are no competing gods. He alone is your fortress. He alone is your hope. He alone is your salvation. He alone is your treasure. Don't put anything else in competition with him. He's above all things. Psalm 115.8 says, those who make idols are just like them, as are all who trust in them. What is Psalm 115.8 saying? It's saying that if you have a God lesser than the God of the Bible, you will become like that God. You mimic what you worship. You will become like what you worship. You see this all the time. So for example, here's my son, Caleb. He's going to be in pre-K-4 next year. He's awesome. I love this kid so much. But I made the mistake of taking him to see the Lion King 3D. And he came out of there and everything was roar, constant roaring. He loved Mufasa. He will not be Simba. He has to be Mufasa. When we're battling around, he will not take the role of Simba. So I have to be the baby lion so he can be the daddy lion. And everything is about lions for him now. Why? Because he watched this movie and loved this Lion King so much that now when he goes around, he wants to be like the lion. I remember this when I was little. How many? I mean, I can remember watching Superman and then going into the bathroom and taking off the towel from the rack and being like, yep, here we go. You know, and I was Superman or watching Karate Kid and then afterward, what's everybody doing? <laughs> the crane kick comes out. You want to become like what you worship. And here's the deal, guys. If we show our kids that Jesus is so precious and so valuable and so far higher above anything in this world, guess who they will want to be like? They will want to be conformed into the image of God, not because it's some religious exercise, because they see him as being so amazingly beautiful, they cannot help but want to be like him. You become what you worship. You look at ancient societies like Athens. Who do they worship? 
They worship the goddess Athena. What's Athena the goddess of? Wisdom, warfare. What is Athens known for? Philosophy, imperial navy. You hear that? You become what you worship. Your society, you show me what's being taught in the schools of a nation, what they worship, I'll tell you what that nation's going to look like. You show me what's being taught in a home, I'll tell you how that kid's going to end up. You will become what you worship. You go to Corinth. Corinth worshiped the goddess Aphrodite. Aphrodite's the goddess of erotic love. What do you think the big problem in Corinth is? Sexual sin. You read First and Second Corinthians and it's disproportionately about sexual sin and all kinds of problems going on. Well, what's going on? You know how you worshipped Aphrodite? At the summit of the city of Corinth, they had a temple. At the temple, you had a thousand prostitutes working around the clock. I'll leave it to your imaginations. And actually, no, don't imagine. But that's how they worshipped. And what is the culture plagued by? And now ask yourselves, what is it that we train up our kids in America? When you look at the education system in America, when you look at pop culture in America, what is it that we hold high for our kids to worship? And then just know that is our future. That is where our society will go. Next slide. So Deuteronomy goes on in the Shema, and right after he says, Hear, O Israel, he goes on and says, You shall love the Lord. You've all heard this. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and everything. Every essence of your being should be devoted to the love of the Lord. Everything. And we hear that and we think, Wow, you know, that's the number one commandment. What's going on here? And I want you to get a right understanding of who you are and why you're here. When God created the heavens and the earth and he created everything and he made man in his own image, it's not like, oh, this will be cool. I'll watch this from a distance and just kind of play God and everybody's on their strings and puppet. God created you to be in relationship with you. The whole reason why you exist is relationship. God, the overflow of God's love being poured out in a creation that he wants to share himself with. And he calls his people the most intimate term you could label anything, a bride. That is your purpose, a bride. He wants your heart. So you look through the scriptures, Mark 12, this is Jesus saying that this is the greatest commandment. The greatest commandment is the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. Everything you have. And Jesus is saying the Shema, that is the greatest commandment. That is the one that you need to hang your hat on. And it's not moralism. Romans 14.23 says this. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Hear that. Whatever you do, if it's not rooted in your faith and allegiance to the Lord, it's sin. Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. That's a really hard pill to swallow. I want you to hear this. Suppose an atheist is a mega billionaire, and he goes out and he builds hospitals and schools, and he does all this amazing philanthropic work. And he has no faith, none of it pleases God. Does that sit uneasy with anybody in here? That sits uneasy with me until I understand the heart of God behind it. He's not interested in your stuff. He's not interested in your deeds. He's not interested in anything you have to give him unless your heart comes first. 
Let me give you an example. Laura and I celebrated our five-year anniversary yesterday. Suppose on my way home to see her, I decided for myself, man, I'm going to stop off. I'm going to go to the store. I'm going to pick up three dozen of their best flowers. I'm going to put it in the nicest vase. I'm going to make it pretty. I'm going to get bows. I'm going to stop off. I'm going to go to the candy store. I'm going to buy the biggest box of chocolates that she loves. I'm going to get home. I'm going to open the door. I'm going to pull out this piece of paper and I'm going to read her the best poem I've ever written to show my love for her. I'm going to tell her that my whole life revolves around her. I'm going to see her melt because my poetry's awesome, right? But if I did all that and I did all this great stuff and as I came in to give her a kiss, she noticed on my collar was lipstick and the smell of strange perfume. How valuable are those chocolates? How valuable are those roses? How valuable is that poem? If everything shows that I'm saying one thing and doing one thing, but my heart is somewhere else. You know where those flowers and those candies are going to end up? Right in the trash. God wants your heart. He's the creator of the universe. He speaks worlds by the power of His Word. Your deeds are not going to leave God on His throne going, I wished I could have done that. God wants your heart, right? So the Shema goes on. He says, these words I command you today shall be where? On your heart. And you, here's the the clincher, the greatest commandment. Where does it go? You shall teach them diligently to your children. And I love what, what doesn't come out in the English that comes out really beautifully in the Hebrew. The word teach there is the Hebrew word. It's Shenan or Shenan. And it literally means to sharpen. And the image here is of a sculptor. And when you're teaching your kids to love the Lord with everything they've got, and you're making them into who they're supposed to be, the image is that you as a mom and a dad are taking out a chisel and a hammer. And you're going up to this blank slate of stone and ding, 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 sorry. And you're hammering away and you're chiseling them. You're conforming them into what you want them to be. You're conforming them into the image of Christ. You're conforming them into the image of God. But this is hard. It's painful. It takes a lot of work. And he goes on and he's like, and just in case you think this idea of being a Christian parent is a part-time job, let me lay this on you. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house. In other words, when you're in private, speak about the love of God. Train up your kids in the way they should go, right? Or when you walk by the way. In other words, when you go out in public. Well, if you're to speak about God in private and then you're to speak about God in public, where are you not to speak about God? When you lie down and when you rise. In other words, in the evening and in the morning, you should be teaching your kids how to worship the Lord. Public, private, morning, evening, everything you do as a Christian parent, it's not like all of a sudden the day ends and you go, ah, take off my Christian education hat. My kids are no longer, I mean, your kids watch everything. They know. I've never seen better lie detectors than high school students. Really. If you're a teacher and you're in a classroom and you're saying to them, I love you guys, they know whether or not you're telling the truth. They know whether or not you're really living it, whether or not you really believe what you're teaching. If you as a parent are not really invested in loving the Lord, I guarantee you your kids will see through it. 
It's a constant thing. You're to draw near to the Lord first because of your relationship with the Lord, but second, your kid sees everything. It's constant. So next, this verse blows me away. Psalm 8, David is writing the psalm and he says this, Out of the mouths of babies and infants, the weakest of all human beings, you have ordained strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. And then listen to where David goes. It's not an accident. Psalm 8, 3 and 4, he says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of us? We're so small. We're so insignificant. Look what you've done. This declares your glory and you're concerned with us. What is the son of man that you care for him? And just in case you don't fully recognize how humble it is to stand before God, and this won't even do it justice, this is the size of the earth next to the sun. That tiny, 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 tiny little speck down there that you can barely see, that's the size of the earth next to the sun. And the sun at its core burns at 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. The energy that it produces in one second is like 67 trillion atomic bombs going off every second. Our sun. It produces so much energy it would power the world's energy needs for 500,000 years. And God just said, exist. He is powerful. And here's the part that kind of blows my mind. We're on this tiny, tiny little earth. And there's our sun. And now here's our sun next to a couple other stars in our galaxy. And our sun is so small in comparison. Our sun is kind of a C minus star in the, in our galaxy. Next to some bigger stars, it doesn't even compare. Here's our sun at one pixel. You can't even see it because the power of God is so amazing that he just says exist and amazing things come into being. And now I want you to remember what I just said. Psalm 8, 2. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, God has ordained his strength. Ponder that. Here's a God who can create a universe, stars, suns, amazing demonstrations of power. And when you get into his word, God says, you want to lay hold of my power? Here's where it is. It's in the mouths of your children. It's in the praises of what your kids bring to the table, the sincerity of whether or not they love God and whether the generation of the church, which is God's army advancing into this world, whether or not it's going to continue. You want my power? It's to be found ensuring that the praises of God stay on the lips of your kids. That's power. That's stunning. The weakest of all human beings is the place where God says he puts his strength. That's the way he works. It's awesome. What an opportunity we have. And everybody agrees. You look at political philosophers. Here's Abraham Lincoln. He says the philosophy of the classroom in one generation will be the philosophy of the government in the next. Yikes. Really, yikes. Aristotle says this. All who have meditated on the art of governing mankind have been convinced that the fate of empires depends on the education of the youth. God's word. Political philosophers can see this. Or in a bad case, Vladimir Lenin, Red Terror, first communistic dictator, 
killed 10 million of his own people, says this, give us the child for eight years, it'll be a Bolshevik forever. Give me four years to teach the children and the seed I've sown will never be uprooted. A lie told often enough becomes the truth. Folks, all the people in this world that are pushing this message that God is a joke are working overtime to reach your kids. And if you don't have kids... They're working overtime to reach the kids of this church, the kids of this city. Next slide. That's why Deuteronomy 6.8 says this. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. What is God saying? Well, the Jews, the Jewish rabbis take this quite literally, and they walk around and they actually put boxes on their foreheads and they roll up copies of the Shema and they put them in that box. And I thought about coming out here wearing one, but you wouldn't hear a word I had to say. (laughs) Rightfully so, because I would look like an idiot and they don't make bands big enough to fit around my head. I, I, anyway, I was, I'll make fun of Matt Lominick's head for a minute. <clears throat> My head is so massive that they have a hard time fitting this, but Andy insured me. She's like, oh, we have to deal with Lominick's head. You're fine. So anyway, sorry, Matt, sorry. But anyway, what is God communicating when he says that you shall have them as a sign on your hand and in, in between the frontlets of your eyes? What he's saying is, well, you teach in the morning, you teach in the evening, you teach when you go to lie down, when you rise up, you teach when you're in public, you teach when you're in private, and now he says, you're going to have them as a sign on your hand and between your eyes. What is he saying? When you're out working, what is always to be before you? You're always to remember that you exist to love God and to be loved by God. Always. You're going to see that as a sign on your hands. When you meditate, You're always going to see that reminder that every ounce, every inch of your being exists to love God and to be loved by God. Every bit of it. And what does he promise? At the end of the Shema, there's this cool line that I don't I don't know that most people get, but you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And still to this day, if you go to an Orthodox Jew, you may have seen these little things that that person is holding. It's called a mezuzah. They put it on their door when they come in. And what does that do? It reminds them, okay, this house belongs to the Lord. I'm to love the Lord their God when I come in or when I go out. It's always there as a reminder. But I want you to think now, what is God communicating when he looks at these Israelites who have just come out of Egypt, who've just been ransomed from slavery in the land of death and horrible things? What do you think they hear when God says, hey, this word of God that's commanding you to love me? I want it on your doorposts. Why would that sound familiar to them? Because when they came out of Egypt, God said, I want you to take the blood of an unblemished lamb. I want you to slaughter it. I want you to take its blood. And I want you to put the blood that will save you from death and bondage. I want you to put it on the doorpost. And now when God is speaking to this next generation, he says this, You are to put my words on your doorpost. What is communicated there? My word saves you from bondage and it leads you into life. It will save you from death. It will keep you from pouring out your life in a way that's just constant bondage. It's like the blood. My word is life. And Jesus comes and he spills his blood and he is the word. He's ultimate salvation and a fortress for us. He finishes this whole sermon of Deuteronomy before he gets into blessing the tribes by saying this. Take 
to heart all the words I've solemnly declared to you this day so you may command your children. Why is he giving this whole sermon? So you may command your children to obey carefully all the words of this law. They are not just idle words for you. They are your life. And we tend to hear that and think to ourselves, all right, well, that's Bible talk. Nice, nice, that's interesting. And what they found... And every second, and they do more and more of this because they're finding correlations. But the University of Texas, the University of Colorado and Florida State University did this massive study. They followed thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And they found out that church attendance has actually a direct correlation to how long you live. And they found that people who attend church weekly live on average 7.6 years longer than those who don't. These are not just idle words. They are your life. And it's not just talking about eternal life. Things may go well for you if you have the Word of God in you, written on your heart. Other studies in education, this came out of the University of North Carolina. Listen to all the benefits. This shouldn't surprise us. But this is what they're finding. More religious students were less likely to drink, struggle with addictions, face depression, engage in violence, be combative with parents. There's a benefit. Skip school, steal, trespass, suffer in-school disciplinary actions. They go on and say they were more likely to have a positive outlook on life, receive higher grades, exercise, experience happier home lives, participate in extracurricular activities, graduate high school, and find stable relationships with their peers. Gee, the Bible is true? Wow. And more important than this is I want you to get this. You know, we exist as a Christian school, Bethany. You exist as a church filled with priests who are, whether or not you have kids or not, your commission is to train up the next generation from God. That's your commission. What an opportunity. And I want to show you How God works. How does God bring deliverance to his people? He likes to work through the praises of the younger generations. So, for example, when they come out of Egypt, God sends, has Moses send 12 spies into the land. They come back and they say, 10 of them say, oh, we could never take them. But Joshua and Caleb say, we can take them. Let's go do it. And they don't obey. And they want to go back to Egypt. And they're constantly complaining. So God comes forward and he says, of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and up, who've grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I have swore that I would make you dwell except for Caleb and for Joshua, the two faithful spies. And then he adds this, but your little ones who you said would become a prey, I will bring in and they shall know the land that you've rejected. And then he tells Moses, I want you to make sure that all these kids are trained up and loving me and praising me and knowing my goodness and knowing my refuge and knowing how much I dote on them and love them to teach them to be conformed into my image, in other words. And there, here we go. They're trained up. Now they're on the move. They're going to Jericho. This is the ultimate battle of the Old Testament, right? They're coming up. Jericho is this mighty city. Walls that just go up and up. And it's like, who in the world can take that city and listen to what God does? And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I've given Jericho into your hand with its king and its mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. I always read that story, and be honest, if you read that story, you're thinking, that's a pretty kooky battle strategy. What is marching around the city going to do? Well, it's not a battle strategy. The Lord said to Joshua, see, if, 
in two particular cultures, Egypt, where they had come from, and Canaan, where they were trying to dwell, where Jericho was, there was a practice that when you wanted to become a king of a city during your coronation, you would take all of your wealth and you would walk around the limits of your empire. And basically that was like saying, I own this. This is my kingdom. So the Pharaoh would do that in Egypt. And Baal, according to their mythology, had done that around all the cities of Canaan. And now God takes his people, his priests, their trumpets, the Ark of the Covenant that holds the dwelling place of God's glory, and they start walking around the city. Now, if you're a Canaanite living in Jericho, what are you thinking? What in the world is going on? These kooks out there having a coronation ceremony? (laughs) Good luck. And then God... Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark, and on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And what happens? When you hear the sound of the trumpet, and all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight in. Why in the world does God ordain it this way? Now, one thing you should know, In the Hebrew, the word for shout is the same as praising or singing. They're used interchangeably. When they worshiped, they worshiped with everything they had, all their gusto. For example, when Joshua's on the mountain and they, with Moses, and they hear about the golden calf and they're singing and everybody's down there engaging in revelry, what does Joshua say? He says, when they heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, it's the sound of singing I hear. Shouting and singing were together, right? So here you have the people going up against Jericho. And how does God want to show them that they're going to have victory? He takes them on a victory lap first. This is my coronation. I am your king. This is a new kingdom. We're coming into the promised land. And how does he show the people, this younger generation that he has trained up, that they're going to achieve victory in this world? By the praises of their lips. Off of the lips of infants and babies, God has ordained his strength. It conquers kingdoms, folks. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. That's what God is teaching. He wants us, our kids, to know that whatever trial, whatever battle comes our way, guess where we find victory? It's when we cry out to the God of the universe who has our back and loves our praise, who is thrilled with our adoration, and he has your back, that's where you find victory. That's where you will conquer all the cities that stand against you in this life. And you look at Jesus when he goes to Jerusalem. It says they took palm branches and went out to meet him, and they're shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. What are they shouting? They're shouting a psalm. What is a psalm? It's a song. They are singing this, right, from Psalm 18. And Psalm 18 says, save us. We pray, that's Hosanna in Hebrew, save us. We pray, O Lord. We pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And everybody's okay with the adults singing this. But you come next and it says, when the chief priests, the priests who are responsible for training up the young, when they saw the wonderful things he did and the children crying out to him, Hosanna to the son of David, (gasps) now they become indignant. And what does Jesus say to them? They say, do you hear what these kids are saying? And Jesus said, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have ordained praise? And he takes the word that in Hebrew is strength and makes it praise. 
That is the strength of God, the praise of young kids. And just like God had conquered Jericho and achieved victory seven days, and the shouting of the people, what happens? Seven days later, God achieves victory for us. And he overcomes death. And he overcomes sin. And he triumphs to show himself as the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings in your life. And you find this pattern all throughout the scriptures where the praises of God's people invite him to come to their defense and to achieve victory. And the one I'll point to you is in Revelation where it says, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, interestingly enough. And all of a sudden, this is when the persecution of the church, when everything is going bananas. If you've ever read Jesus' words about what it will be like at the end, it is miserable. It is unbelievable. There is, it seems like no hope. The love of many grow cold. It's awful. And where do they find their solace and the praises? He gives seven trumpets to angels. Sound familiar? He's building up to another Jericho moment where his people are going to be ushered into a promised land, right? And then we get to Revelation 19 where the climax happens. And I heard what sound like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, singing, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, but it's not loud enough. So 19.3, again, they shouted, hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever, and it's not loud enough. And now all the saints, all the generations that have been trained up in the Lord, then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like loud claps, Peals of thunder, shouting hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. And it's upon the praises of God's people, what happens? Bam. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True, with justice. He judges and makes wars. His eyes are like a blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns, and his name is the Word of God. God answers the praises of his people. And you wonder why God, when he gives us this instruction, says, you want my power, you want my strength, you know where it's found? It's found on the lips of your kids. What an opportunity we have, church. What an opportunity we have. You know, I remember when, when Caleb was first born. He's almost four. And I remember when he was first born, we were in the delivery room, and before going in, everybody gives you that wager. You're going to cry like a baby. I'm not going to cry. Get out of here. You're going to cry like a baby. I'm not going to cry. And then Caleb's born. You know, and I cry like a baby. And the doctor takes him, and I mean, you know how the, the woman's stomach after delivery is kind of like a waterbed, and the doctor took Caleb and kind of like playing shuffleboard, slid Caleb up her stomach. It was kind of disturbing. But anyway... <clears throat> I grab Caleb up and I'm holding Caleb in my hands and that's when I begin to weep. And I remember having this overwhelming conviction. (laughs) I can't do this. Like, this is too profound for me. God, help me. Help me. He's yours. Please just help me. I remember having this realization that God who creates all things out of nothing gives human beings one power like that. You create, when you bring children into this world, is the creation of an immortal, everlasting soul that had not existed before. And God gives you the power as moms and dads and people to bring forward that. 
And I remember thinking when I got home, and I mean this kind of overwhelming pressure of being a dad hits me. And if you're struggling with this, I want you to hear me. There's the overwhelming pressure of having to make ends meet. There's the overwhelming pressure of having to be the glue of your family. There's the overwhelming pressure that goes along with being a dad. All that stuff will fade away. You have one investment that will last forever. And it's impressing upon the heart and mind of your child the love of God. That will endure forever. Whether or not you put food on a table one night, it's important, but it pales in comparison to Christian education of your kid. Pales. Not even close. I did some studies and when I wrote this book, and I found this. 9%, this is according to Barna, who does all the research for evangelical Christendom, and they say 9% of all American adults have a biblical worldview. That means they they agree with inerrancy of Scripture. They agree that Jesus is the only way for salvation. They agree with basic premises of what it means to be a Christian. 9% of Americans have a biblical worldview, but when you look at the age range of 18 to 23, the group that's just coming out of high school or just coming out of college, that number drops to less than one half of 1%. Wow. Wow. This is a quote by Charles Potter, who was a co-founder of the NEA back in 1930s. He said this, education is the most powerful ally of humanism or atheism. And every American public school is a school of humanism. What can theistic Sunday schools do, meeting an hour once a week and teaching only a fraction of the children, do to stem the tide of a five-day program of humanistic teaching? Really? I mean, there's good public schools, but like, like I said, you're constantly training your kids what to worship. You've got a huge, huge task ahead of you. They're being inundated by media, culture, some schools. God is removed intentionally from the public schools, and just the absence says something great to them. Nearly, this is also from Barna, nearly three out of every five young Christians, 60%, disconnect either permanently or for an extended period of time from church life after age 15. 60%. This is life and death, folks. And even if it's not reaching children at Bethany, our church has an obligation to reach kids wherever we find them in our city, in our school, in our homes, for parents, unfortunately, who can't afford private education or afford to homeschool, man, I would have a passion to make that possible for you. But we need a team effort. We need a team effort. Bethany is an amazing school. I've heard nothing but amazing things out of it. The kids that I have that come out of Bethany have their head on straight. They love the Lord. It's an amazing resource with amazing teachers And it deserves our support, and I cannot wait to get in there and drive and give everything I have to reach these kids and their parents and to walk alongside of you to reach this next generation. One thing when we were in Haiti, I came across this woman, Miss Ellie, and I'll close with this. This woman, when you walk into the the place where she's got these kids, I mean, the kids are singing loudly. I mean, it's like you walk in and it's the most amazing place and they're so happy and you just, you just kind of want to stay there and listen to them sing. I mean, amazing. 
I mean, the songs get stuck in your head after a while, but it's just awesome. And this woman is smiling so big that you think, how are your cheeks not hurting? I mean, they're just balled up up here. She's so happy. And then I find out, like, someone pulls me aside and she says, do you know the story of Miss Ellie? And I said, no, I don't. And she said, well, they used to live in Port-au-Prince, and now they're outside Port-au-Prince. But when the earthquake struck, she lost all of her kids except one son. And her husband and her lost their income, lost their home, lost their everything, destroyed everything. So the husband says, there's no hope for us here. We need to leave. So he started applying for visas to come into the United States. And eventually one got granted, big celebration. And on the day that they're about to leave, his wife finds out that the husband had gotten a visa for himself, for his son, and for his mom. And they disappeared. And left Miss Ellie in a field of rubble where they throw all the orphans in Port-au-Prince. No way of feeding, no shelter. And what does this woman do? Stacked up against incredible odds, she goes around and she finds kids in the streets crying because they've lost everything. And she adopts them one by one. And this woman adopted 23 kids. Started her own school, her own orphanage. They said last time they'd seen this woman, she was skin and bones because she gives all of her food to them. And I've never seen happier kids and a happier woman. And I walk in there and we're giving them shoes and, and notebooks and pencils, which they treat like bars of gold over there. And this woman looks at us and says these two passages. And it blew me away that she's thanking us. She says, Jesus said, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cold cup of water because he's a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose their reward. And then she says, Matthew 18, 5. Whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. I don't want this just to be a sermon for you. I want this to be an invitation. That going forward as Rio and Bethany move forward reaching this next generation, I want you to have those words of Jesus reaching into your heart. Whoever welcomes one little child like this welcomes me. We've got an amazing opportunity to stem the tide of a culture that's sprinting away from God and an amazing school with amazing teachers. And what I want from you guys is a pledge that you're going to stand side by side, shoulder to shoulder to train up this next generation. You will not lose your reward. Let's pray.